Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about development, talking about lessons learned from developing games, talking to a professional game developer, Mr. Joe Pilkus. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Gabe. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, man, you're a guy that, that I've, I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. You, you're always around in the comment sections. You're always helping other people out, and, and you always had really cool uh, and engaging things to say online. And so you, you've been doing this development thing for a while. You're, you're, you work for the FBI by day, and you develop games by night. You've got this really cool uh, <laughs> lifestyle going on. And so I'm pumped just to kind of hear you know your thoughts of, of things you, you've learned over the years, working with some pretty major companies on some pretty major games. And so I'm really excited to talk to you. But before we get into that, Kind of who are you? Uh, how'd you get into game design, game development, that kind of thing? Yeah, so uh, like most of the folks you've talked to in the past, uh, I spent a lot of time playing things like Monopoly, Life, Scrabble, um, chess. Um, and chess was one of those things that even now as a, as a developer, I look at as such an elegant game. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of rule sets, but how much has been written on it, how much has been played. Uh, you Growing up in Philadelphia, in uh, a group of friends, and we had a chess club among the five or six of us for several years. And my father was more than just an avid chess player. And actually, until he passed away in early 2000s, I never beat the man two out of three games. Uh, I'd get one. And uh, what he would tell my friends was, look, if you can beat Joe, then you get to play me. So <laughs> that, was the, that was the incentive to play my father. Um, yeah, later on, military war games. Things like uh, Third Reich, Advanced Squad Leader. Uh, and of course, as a kid in the 80s, I delved into role-playing games, most notably D&D, but also Traveler, Top Secret, Boo Hill, uh, and other ones. So now uh, I'm celebrating my 10-year, I guess I call it my 10-year anniversary um, in this renaissance of board gaming. So friends of mine had attended Origins back then, and I eventually played... My first game in January 20, 2009, and it wasn't Ticket to Ride, it wasn't Puerto Rico or Agricola, but it was actually Arkham Horror. Um, it's massive and bloated, I get that, the rules aren't particularly great. It's a beautiful mess, uh, part RPG and part board game. But I think the thing that really fascinated me was the fact, not that it played eight, but that it played one. Um, and I think that's something that kind of carried with me as now a proud one-player guild member uh, and somebody who works uh, extensively with Morton Peterson from the Autonomous Factory. And since 2010, a work colleague of mine asked me to play test a war game. And it was one of these kind of historical what-ifs. Uh, you know, what if the Japanese invaded, not just bombed Pearl Harbor? So now I've had the opportunity to be a play tester and rules editor for something on something on the order of 40 or 50 games uh, over the past nine years. And uh, critical to me getting into this whole thing um, beyond decision games was my exposure to something like uh, Word Game Design Forum, where I first met you, Gabe. Um, 
And oh yeah, that's great. right. That was way back. Yeah, that was a few it days was, ago. Was, yeah, yeah. And I know you and I exchanged a number of uh, number of notes back and forth. And great folks. Uh, I lurked for a little bit, then I jumped in and really offered my assistance to fledgling designers and said, "Hey, does anybody can anybody read my rules?" And I said, "Absolutely." So while ninety, probably five, ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the designs didn't go anywhere. It certainly gave me an opportunity to kind of broadly network and then gain experience as a proofreader editor. Uh, in some cases, people sent me print and play copies, which was great. Um, so I could provide feedback and all of that. And I'll go into this later, but you know, all of that certainly informed how I did what I did for others. And, and that was the thing. I think this is one of the few industries where you really get a lot out of helping other people. It, it, that that to me is remarkable. Um, so I've been very fortunate, you know, collaborated with another a number of companies, a number of publishers, and and you know a, a good deal of titles. So very pleased with that. Yeah, absolutely. And so what what happened though that kind of gets you into the professional side of things? So as I know, a lot of people listen to this, they want to get into the industry in some way, you know, some shape or form. And so what kind of flipped the switch for you to start making money? Actually reading rules, developing games, working with companies in more than just a fan or a gamer role, but actually like getting paid to do so. Yeah, I, th I think part of it is uh, it's twofold. So I, I, I joke with colleagues of mine that, you know, both at the both at the bureau and in the gaming industry, you have highly intelligent introverts. So for me, being the extrovert, <laughs> I'll be the first person to call somebody, uh, you know, email them, reach out to them, uh, have that dialogue. And I had a very warm reception from folks uh, like Uwe Eichert from Academy Games. Uh, I've worked with him now for several years, most notably on like proofreading, editing things like 878 Vikings and Awakening the Bear. Um, folks like Jamie Stegmeier. Uh, I had read his book. I had been a, a backer in his early Kickstarter days, but really reaching out to him and asking, hey, is there anything that I could do that would, that would help you help, you know, in, in terms of developing, uh, you know, your games. And that led to working with uh, Morgan Peterson and then years and years with decision games and compass games. Um, and then eventually what led to Outer Limit bringing me on as a developer and having worked so closely with them, they had actually named me a designer by the end because I had done so much work. So it was really, for me, it was exposure to a great number of publishers um, taking that first step. And I think you've mentioned this in the past, you know, what are you doing today? I think one of, in one of your most recent podcasts, you talked about the young lady in your class who was going to do videos sometime down the road. Well, don't wait down the road, do it now. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things I would, I would as we say in the military, I'd foot stomp that. Um, start doing, get out there, um, get your name out there, talk to people, um, do, do the hard work. And, you know, I think it was someone like, uh, I think it was the undead Viking who once said, and he's not the first to say it, but so many, you know, other people have used this same line that it took eight or nine or 10 years to become an overnight success. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's, it, it's really just putting that work in early doing the gratis work, you know, doing whatever, whatever it takes to, to show that you have the skill and the talent and then the follow through to, uh, 
you know, to actually to deliver on the promises made. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I, I know from personal experience. Uh, the graphic designer that I, I've been working with for the last several projects on the books, on, on my games, uh, he reached out to me way back when and said, hey, I'm a graphic designer. love what you do. I want to be a part of a project down the road. Uh, is there anything I can do right now? You know, we're just kind of pro bono and let me show you my skills. And I said, sure, man, I've got this prototype I'm working on. And so here, here's, here's a couple of like card layouts that I need. Mm-hmm. He's like, cool. And then like a few days later, he sent it back and it was phenomenal. Like, it was incredible work. And I was like, I am working with you, sir. Like as soon as I have a project, I am, I'm calling you. And it wasn't that long that, that I started working on some different things. And, and he has been working with me ever since. And so it's the worst somebody can say is no. You reach out to him, you say, hey, I want to I want to proofread your rules. I want to help with this, help with that. Cool. The worst I can say is no. And then you go try somebody else. And eventually people are going to say yes. You know, and the more you uh, do it, the more experience you gain, the more of a reputation you get. And then eventually you can start doing some really, really cool projects. But like you're saying, it's got to you got to start somewhere. You know, you got to make that first video. You can't just sit there and go, mm, I want to make YouTube content. Well, we'll start right. wanting. You can you can want all day. It's not going to help you. Right. <laughs> uh, you got to actually, you know, start doing what it takes. And I think a lot of people also are just kind of waiting on permission. That's one thing I've noticed. So this is especially true in like leadership. You know, people are waiting for someone to tell them they're a leader. And, and instead of like, no, you, you're maybe you just are one. Just start leading, you know. And I think the same thing is true with creating stuff. Like, don't wait for someone to tell you you're a game designer or an artist or a writer. Like, just start acting like you are. And maybe one day you'll like be a legit one. Like, you, you might be one of the few, you know, to come out of nowhere. And so I think act, act. I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Go ahead and start acting as if you already were. And then the universe will will move for you, I promise. And so that's kind of the the, the way I look at it. Yeah, that's that's definitely um, over my, my career. So I started out, well, started out in real estate many years ago. Uh, and then from there, after my degree, I had pursued uh, an Air Force career for 10 years. And, and again, to your point, spot on, especially from an Air Force background, I can't speak to some of the other services, but in the Air Force, you're, you're given leadership roles at a very junior level, you know, being an airman on the enlisted side or a lieutenant on the officer side, you're expected to lead. And not everyone can do that necessarily well, but I think you're informed by the folks around you, uh, either your subordinates, your superiors. Um, but I would say by and large, you know, most, most military officers can lead reasonably well. Why? Well, because they're kind of tested by fire. They have to do it. Um, you can only read so much about leadership. You actually have to go test it, go do that. And that's okay. Because I think for a lot of junior officers and even for some of our, many of our enlisted members, um, you know, as I, as I tell folks fail or be prepared to fail in a safe environment, right? No military is going to send you generally into harm's way without having the proper training in advance. So the same thing. So during that training, yeah, fail in that safe environment where you can kind of get up, dust yourself off. Okay, that didn't work. Let me try this. Um, and again, game design is nowhere near that level of <laughs> not that level of conflict. Right. Um, this should be easy for folks to kind of throw themselves in there and just try. You know, get out there and at least uh, hone your skills, whatever they may be. Be it artistry, be it you know graphic design, be it proofreading, editing, whatever. You probably, you know, you have something to contribute to the overall, um, to the overall industry, especially if you're already passionate about it. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, so preparing for this episode, we, we talked, you know, hey, what do you want to talk about, that kind of thing? And you had a, a top 10 list of things you've learned, lessons you've learned from developing games. So I'm excited just to go through that list. Let's actually just start with that. Let's go with number 10. What have you learned? What, what's number 10 lesson that you've picked up over the years? Yeah, so one of the things, so my number, t- my number 10 is passion and zeal are no substitute for skill. And I certainly, by that, I don't want to under, you know, not underscore the fact that you bring to this industry, like you bring to any industry that you want to work in, a certain level of passion and zeal. But underlying all that has to be a level of skill as far as board game design or development. I may want to have a passion to be a great artist. Gabe, I am not a great artist. Okay, I can't make you know a reasonable stick figure. So I can't, um, you know, I can't overcome that limitation, no matter how passionate I may be about, you know, becoming an artist uh, or an or an illustrator. And I saw that time and time again, more so probably several years ago when I spent, um, by my daughter's recollection, probably an inordinate amount of time on the board game design forum. But there were a number of people who were very passionate. They put that you could tell that they put a lot of heart and soul into their work. You can see it today on a number of Kickstarters, which will ultimately fail, not because they're not excited about it, but because clearly they have not done any research in the board game industry. They've played very few games. They just don't know anything about it. And I'm sure you have seen this as well. Am I not mistaken? Oh, absolutely. This is definitely something that, that comes up a lot. I think, honestly, it's because the uh, board game space has such a low barrier to entry where you can just kind of start prototyping a game. You can start working on a game. You can go to Kickstarter now and people see you know games making a million dollars and they think, well, I could do that. And so they, they kind of mis, misplace their energy a lot of times and it's a little bit too far on the passion side and not enough, like you're saying, on the research side, on the growing side, on the learning side. You know, if you think about the NFL, you can be passionate about the NFL all day long. That doesn't mean you're going to be athletic enough to play in the NFL. But we all know that. We all know if you're not, you know, six foot five and 250 and run a four four, like you're not going to play in the NFL. You're not going to be a professional athlete. But That's with right. board games or a lot of the creative kind of things, you don't have that like very strict barrier for, for you know, like it is in athletics. And so I think that kind of uh, gets people traveling down the wrong road sometimes and thinking, well, I, I could do that. Anybody could do that, right? Well, no, not necessarily. It's a craft, just like any other skill, just like anything you have to hone and really work on. Uh, there's no shortcut. And I think that, uh, that that's definitely the case a lot uh, with people just coming into the hobby. Yeah. And, and, and to, to some degree, I think we had those barriers in the past. And for all the good that came with something like the internet, it gives folks a false sense of propriety that just because you can, you should. So in the past, we had gatekeepers. They were Milton Bradley. They were Hasbro. They were Parker Brothers. And one, just trying to get in the front door was a monumental task. Uh, And before the internet, even finding out where you could send something was difficult at best. But now with the entree of things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, Anyone can throw up anything anywhere. Um, and you're right. So I, I, I'm, often, I'm often betwixt and between on my thoughts on that because it, at some point, there should still be some type of barrier, but who proposes the barrier? Um, 
you know, while Kickstarter is going to get 10% of whatever they make, they're not incentivized to turn down bad projects. So that leaves it to the marketplace. That leaves it to folks like, you know, you and I to say, I'm not backing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think the market has become the the main gatekeeper. Like you're saying, we've lost, and this is true across the board, right? With publishing, now you could write a 10-page book and it could be on Amazon today up for sale in their store, right? Through their print-on-demand service. And so like, it's, it's really cool we live in a time where there aren't that many, if any, gatekeepers anymore. But there's also that, that downside of things where now you get a flooded market. But I think it kind of balances things out, right? If you look at Kickstarter, games that funded easily three years ago don't even make a thousand dollars now and don't even make ten thousand dollars now right because the market right. is so saturated with greatness that the cream does kind of rise to the top and now, now people are like oh well it's, it's so crowded and it's a noisy marketplace and like that. yeah and it is and it's a little harder to stand out but that's that's probably a good thing because the market is becoming more and more of the gatekeeper that we need for greatness and so it's it's very interesting the times we're living in and and, and I, just one brief example of this you know something i saw recently when i was at origins a game like space explorers by the Russian designer. I don't know if you've seen Space Explorers. No, I don't think so. Super clever game. And it's, you know, it's in the same bucket that I would put something like Splendor. But here you're going after, you know, technicians and engineers and astronauts. Um, it has a very unique economic component, beautiful artwork, very elegant design. And that can make it. So I'm often heartened when I walk around not all 450 stalls at Origins. Let's say there's only 200 of them are actually designers and publishers. But there's some really great work being done out there. Um, but again, not everybody gets to see that. Um, and again, you know, their 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 barriers are lowered because hey, they can afford they can afford to have a place at Origins. They have a little bit of press. You know, BGG costs nothing. You know, to put stuff out there. Uh, I think BGG recently went through and started cutting the numbers in terms of the ratings and the, um, so for instance, I think even just a couple of years ago, you could see rank number one down to maybe 75,000 uh, of, of everything that was in there based on their rating schema. Now I think it goes into the, the high teens and that's it because they're kind of discontinuing any ratings below a certain level because because you know no one's buying that product no one's looking at that um it's it's dated and not just dated like puerto rico's dated but it's also still number 24 you know what i mean yeah. uh it you know the, the the world of game design has moved on so again i go back passion and zeal great that's an additive uh to your skill, you know, not in lieu of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Don't be all flash and no fire. There you go. Uh, all right. So what's, uh, what's number nine? So number nine, um, have the end in mind. So um, what, I, what I'm talking about here is kind of know the designers, especially as a developer, know the designer's vision. In the military, we call it commander's intent. And I think one of the way, ways you have phrased it in the past, and it resonates so much with me, when I do development work is what is that experience that I'm trying to elicit? If I'm, if I am an astronaut, do I feel as though the things I'm doing 
uh, are germane to what an astronaut would do. Now, I'm not saying I need to put on a helmet, you know, and sit in a vacuum, but, you know, when I'm sitting at the table, do I feel as though I'm taking this ship into space? Um, the, 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 the individuals or encounters I'm having, the different races, if it's a thematic game, moreover on thematic games, um, you know, what is, what is that experience? And do I walk away with that experience? Or is it more of the same from the beginning to the end over 90 minutes? You know, has anything radically changed on the board? Has anything radically changed with me as a player? Um, so those are the things I think need to be codified. You know, we, we love and we love in both the military and civilian side. We love our mission and vision statements. But I think it's something to be said for having that, um, you know, having that centerpiece that always becomes your kind of North Star. Is what I'm doing always pointed back to that experience, to that which I'm trying to get this game to do for the folks who are sitting down at the table and not just spending their hard-earned money, but actually spending their time. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, yes, you know, we want people to have fun, sit around and you know, have a great time, um, but it should be more than just, more than just pushing, pushing cubes. And that's no offense to my fellow Euro lovers out there, but you know, what, what is that experience? And I think you, you get to that experience by, by, you know, knowing what the designer's intent is. Um, and, and there may be times to, to modify that. There may be times to alter that in that conversation. And it really depends on the relationship you have with the designer. But, have, but again, have that end in mind. Know upfront what you plan on doing. And everything you, you do should focus towards that. I imagine you did the same thing with, you know, Final Flick to Year, et cetera. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is also something I've really been working on um, recently. So I've been working on a solo game that has, it's kind of like Aliens as its inspiration. And so when I first started working on the game, I wanted the experience to be tense and be paranoid. You know, I want the player to be a little bit paranoid and they're not sure about what, what card is going to come up next. And I want that feeling of trying to run away and trying to escape the alien that's going to, that's going to get you, right? You're either going to get off the ship and escape or it's going to, it's going to eat you. And so what's great about beginning with the end in mind is it gives you an awesome decision filter and everything that you want to do, whether it's the mechanisms, whether it's the playtime, whether it's the art and the graphic design, everything that you are thinking about going into this game, you just put it into that decision filter and either it points towards the vision of the game or it doesn't. And it makes the decision very, very easy. Okay. This points towards the, the dramatic experience I'm trying to have, the, the paranoid, the fr you know afraid feeling, feeling I want. Cool, let's put it in there. How do we ramp that up to 11? Or, no, this kind of takes away from that. Okay, we'll, we'll cut it out. It doesn't need to be there. And so it makes decisions a lot easier when, when, you're, when you run into challenges, you run into obstacles, you run into designer's block and things like that. You just drop the ideas into that decision filter and what, does it point towards a vision or not? And it's a great way to, to make choices. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I have mentioned this time and time again with the designers, for the designers to make sure that they they themselves have this and then to articulate that to anyone on the team. Be that a graphic designer or illustrator, um, proofreader editor, playtester, developer, everybody should know that. That's not something you keep to yourself. That's something that should be well communicated to the entire team. You know, keep that up front. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what's number eight? So number eight, 
Um, this one, this one could move up arguably on the list, but we'll keep it here for now. Um, play more games. And, and I know that may sound somewhat, um, somewhat ridiculous since, you know, you're, you're in the game design world, but I have seen time and time again, folks who either have not ever experienced anything beyond the, the games that I talked about in the past, Monopoly, Life, Scrabble. They don't know what it means when we talk about area control. They don't know what it means for, you know, press your luck, uh, pick up and deliver. All of those things mean something. The other end of the spectrum is I see folks who try to put everything in, you know, including the kitchen sink. Um, and, and they don't really understand how all of those elements fit together. So themes, mechanics, um, how does how does all of that work? Because I'm sure it's something like, you know, even your design for Final Click Deer is how do you how, how do you move from something that has classically been moving pieces on a board, a la Twilight Imperium or Eclipse, to something where it's now a dexterity game, but we still have all those other elements, which is cool, right? Um, it, it's a very different it's a very different conversation from than than somebody who has never played any game, has never played any kind of game, any kind of dexterity game, um, much less a four X game. And are cobbling together something that's more like a you know Frankenstein game, because they haven't they haven't taken the time to play and really get under the hood of other types of games. Yeah, and also just like any other creative avenue, I don't know how you could hope to be any good at it without experiencing greatness that, that's already come before you. So if you want to be a great writer you have to read great writing. Like you have to read great books and great poems and great plays and great movies. Like you have to read and experience that and see what the great uh, authors and writers before you have done. And one, it gives you ideas, but two, it helps you understand how to do that. You know, how to kind of, and I mean, the first thing most designers do when they first get into this is you emulate, you copy, you know, you played pandemic. And so now you want to make a pandemic clone. And instead of, you know, saving the world from disease, you're saving the world from zombies or, you know, whatever you, but you, right. you, you right. copy, right. But out of that copying comes a lot of learning and you start figuring things out and you go, Oh, now I understand. Oh, okay. The card does this and does that because of this thing over here. And you start putting the pieces together and the same thing with great art. If you want to be great, be a great artist, you need to really look at great art and see the people who've come before you and what they've done with color and lines and shapes and all that kind of things, kinds of things. And so I don't understand why anyone would think they can be a great designer without playing great games. I mean, one, it gives you ideas, but two, it just helps you grasp what is possible and, and kind of what could be done, what has been done, and will kind of lead us towards what could be done down the road. And so, yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, going back, I know you have a football background. You know, there's a difference between a good baseball player or even a great baseball player and an athlete. Someone who's an athlete you could almost put them in, in myriad sports and they would do reasonably well at all of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, they're in good shape, they have the endurance, they have the strength, all of those things combined. Now, I'm not expecting a basketball player necessarily to hop on skates and do hockey, but, but by and large, they, they have kind of the prowess to move a little more you know, seamlessly from one to the other. Um, and how do you do that? Well, you keep everything conditioned and you get conditioned by, you know, you know, running and swimming and all this other stuff. And again, people have only exposed themselves to a limited number of games and a limited number of mechanics could only by extension come up with very limited, you know, limited ideas on how to design games. Yeah, so. for sure. All right. Number seven. So 
here is my uh, clearly shameless uh, plug of my friend Gabe Barrett. So read and watch a lot of great content. Um, you know, I, for me, I, I listen to uh, a handful of podcasts, two for fun. Uh, my friends now in Roanoke, Virginia, so Blue Peg, Pink Peg. My friends in Albuquerque for the for the Brawling Brothers. But then for when I want to sit down over several hours for these two, when I want to learn something, you know, subscribe to, to BGDL. Because I have never in the three years that I've been listening, have I left the podcast having not learned something whatever it may be. And sometimes that learning could simply be nothing more than a reinforcement of something that was previously stated, but it made it much more solidified in my mind. And the other one is ludology. So those are the two things. And I think you owe it to yourself. I'm an old history major. So before you would write, and this goes back to the writing that you mentioned earlier, before you did any writing on any topic, you, you did a, a literature review you did a review of what has been done before. Now this goes beyond the, this goes beyond just designing the game. This is really more kind of a kind of a macro level or meta level in terms of who are kind of the leading lights in the industry. Who are the people that are making positive change? Who should I look to as Maybe not direct mentors, but people that I can definitely glean from having read their blogs, listened to their podcasts, watched videos. You know, when it comes to, you know, reviews, I mean, some people may want to do reviews. Okay, well, if you're not, if you're not at least watching something on the Dice, Dice Tower Network, if you're not familiar with Richard Ham, you know, Rado runs through, then you're, you're, you're kind of doing a disservice to that review because you really need to know what's out there. And, and again, just like the muscle memory we talked about in the previous one, this is really much more of a passive sit down, read, watch, uh, and listen to the, 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 the invaluable content that is out there. And there's a lot of it. Now, granted, there's, there's, there's probably in equal measure stuff that could that could otherwise be ignored um but but it's finding it's finding the good stuff and um and i think shows like yours and ludology would certainly help folks point them in the right direction to the things they should be listening to the things they should be reading the things they should be watching to really inform the way they think about design and development because i'm sure because i'm sure before you did this for the last couple of years, you too had to do something ostensibly similar to that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I started the show is because so much of the content I was finding, it was not exactly what I wanted. And I would have to kind of piece together Frankenstein monster together, what I needed, what I was looking for as far as resources and, and blogs and, and podcasts and stuff like that. And so I, one of the things that really led to this show was thinking, I wish someone would make a podcast like this. And I thought, well, maybe I should just be the one to do it. And so that's where it started. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that it's gotten this far. And so glad that people like you and, and everyone listening uh, continue to listen and continue to be part of the community. It's just been a, a crazy 
ride to be, you know, to get this far. Uh, but also what you were saying reminded me of an old quote I read years ago. I can't even remember who, who said it or wrote it, but they said too many authors sit down to write before they've stood up to live. And I think Ooh, that's the case that's with so wow. much, so much creativity. So many people in the creative endeavors is they sit down to create before they've stood up to, to live and to experience and to just figure things out and to learn and to see what, how other people are doing. And so I, I really want to encourage anyone listening to this, stand up and live, right? Go out there and, and figure things out as far as like, what are the people doing? What have other people done? What are some things that can help you along as far as in your design space? Just like drills. You know, if you're playing a sport, you do a lot of drills. You don't just step on the field and start playing a game. Like, no, you, you learn, you learn cone drills, you learn free throw drills, you learn passing and, and uh, all the different things. And so what can you do right now today? to help improve yourself that way when it does come time to play games, so to speak, uh, and, and get in there and do the full thing, you are much more prepared than if you just stepped on the field today. And so I think a lot of people, they just jump right in and it's like, well, well maybe, maybe learn the foundations first. And then, and because I think long-term you'll be more, or you'll be better off. Yes. And, and again, you have things along this line. I'm, uh, I'm heartened by the folks like Jeff Engelstein and others who have written extensively on this because of their years of experience, um, makes it that much more accessible to folks. I mean, you could go out on Amazon right now, you could pick up his book. You could you know, talk to folks like Gil Hova uh, at Origins. These are folks that love to talk about what they do. They're, they're equally as passionate about what they do. And when you can pull them aside, it's amazing uh, just how forthcoming they are. They, they want, they want to share because they too, in addition to being game designers, they're also game consumers. So they want other good stuff too. And they know they're not the only ones producing games. Yeah. And I want to clarify one thing. I don't want people to hear this and think, oh, I need to wait about designing a game. That's not oh. necessarily what I'm saying. I'm saying don't be upset or frustrated if your first design, if your first 20 designs are, are garbage and no one likes them and they don't, you know, and you pitch them to publishers. Like maybe don't even worry about pitching to publishers. Like maybe don't even worry about a Kickstarter. I see so many people online. They're like, yeah, this is my first ever design. I can't wait to go to Kickstarter. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe that's not the best path. Like maybe that's not, maybe so. I don't know. Maybe you've got the next big, big hit. I don't know. Maybe, but I think so many people, they, they kind of get the, the cart before the horse. And instead of building that foundation that creates greatness long-term, they just are that flash in the pan, you know, and then they get upset because, their game didn't do well, or maybe it did really well on Kickstarter, but then like the actual game, when it, when it came out, it's like, Oh, this is actually not very good. And so I think just, it's something to think about long-term. Do you want to do this for the next five minutes or the next 20 years? And I think is is kind of the bigger picture of what are you really trying to get out of this game design thing? Cause if you're, if you're trying to do this long-term, then you need to make long-term style decisions. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That's right. For, for something like this, it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. Yeah. All right. Number six. So number six of the top 10 uh, things I've learned, uh, I would say deliberate communication. And when, and what I mean by that is anytime you're engaged with the designer or anyone else on the team, um, know well that you know their time, your time is both limited and precious. So have an agenda, Discuss those things that are most pressing. Parking lot, those items that can be discussed at another time. And probably the most important thing is follow up and follow through. If you are tasked with something, do it. 
uh, and I'll talk a little bit of that in a later in a later one too. But just the idea that you're constantly communicating. Um, no couple has ever gotten divorced because of too much communication. <laughs> yeah, okay. and, and in this day and age, with emails, phone, um, something like Skype, Google Hangouts, there is zero excuse for someone who wants to get involved in this industry to not be a good communicator. I'm not saying you need to be a great orator, but you should be a great communicator. And that should be, you know, clearly defined, clearly defined messages, um, follow through on those things that you've, you know, again, that you've been tasked to do or that you have tasked others to do. Uh, I've led other play tests and that can, you know, sometimes that can be a difficult conversation to have, especially if the person hasn't play tested the game yet. Um, they've had it for a week or two weeks and you've set deadlines, you know, meet those deadlines, communicate them, be as clear as possible, you know, without using the C word contract. I mean, you do, you do have something of a verbal contract when you're, when you're, when you're working with your colleagues in this industry. So be very deliberate in your communication. Um, I remember um, from my military days as a lieutenant, I was walking into a meeting with a group of colonels and I was walking in with the wing commander of the base. And I said to the current, I said to the wing commander, I said, sir, I think they, I think they want a lot of your time today. To which the wing commander said, any meeting over an hour should be catered. <laughs> and I've kept that with me my entire life. The fact that you should, you should be able to, um, you know, use brevity, you know, when necessary, um, to engage with other, whomever that may be. Again, other members of the team, the designer, him or herself. And, um, and again, to have that follow through, have the, have the, you know, have the, the presence of mind that, you know, their time is precious. Talk to them, you know, deal with whatever needs to be dealt with at the moment and move on. Um, and I'm sure, you know, just as a designer yourself, again, now you know, you don't have a, a vast team working BGDL, correct? I mean, I, I assume you don't have a, a director and an executive producer, right? Well, I do. They're just, they're just all me. It's all me in the same. <laughs> I, you know, all four right. or five roles are they're just me on different days. And so, yeah. <laughs> your, your production meetings are really short. They are. They happen in my head in the shower. And so... <laughs> <laughs> So, so for so for so many other aspects of this industry, though, you're not dealing with one; you're dealing with many. And, and and again, as somebody who has done this in the professional side, I know how critical it is to be again just be very deliberate in your communication with other people. Yeah, this is a, a big one for me. Like you said, it, like you're gonna have to communicate with a lot of people. Just this morning, I was communicating with people in China people in Great Britain, people in Arizona, people here in Atlanta, all about very similar projects, right? All over the world, different time zones, different things going on, sending out emails, you know, getting messages back, sending you know, replies, all that. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so this is one of those things, you, you just have to get good at it. Uh, it's, you, you, and you can't say, well, I just don't have time. One of the things I've learned is oh. that I have enough time for what I make time for, right? I have just enough time for what I make time for. If I don't make time for it, I don't have time for it. But if I make time for it, I have time for it. It's, it's a magical thing. It's, it's almost like this crazy scientific thing. But I think so many people get caught up thinking they don't have the time. But if you really 
started measuring minute by minute of your day and how much time we spend just wasting time, right? How much time we spend just scrolling through the news feed on Facebook or Instagram, whatever, how much time we spend watching the trailers on Netflix, not even watching an actual movie. (laughs) Yeah, Just going through the trailer. I catch myself doing this sometimes. I'll spend 30 minutes just checking out trailers of what I might watch one day down the road. It's like, think about how much time we waste on a daily basis. And then think about if you could just take all that time and turn it into something useful and efficient and productive, you would get a lot done. And so I think the more you're aware, because you can't change what you're not aware of, can't change what you don't notice. So the more you notice how much time you're wasting, the more time uh, you realize you actually have. And you can actually start uh, scheduling those, the, that time that you normally waste and turning it into something productive and using it to reach out to people, using it to follow up on things, using it to work on game design, work on game development. Just read your rules another time. You know, hey, I've got, I've got eight minutes here. You know, that's just enough time to proofread my rules one more time, right? And so just thinking on those terms, I think goes a long way. Yeah, the, the, the timeliness is never lost on me. There's a the story I tell, it's got to go back 10 years ago, but a friend of mine and I were having a drink uh, at a piano bar uh, down in D.C. And I turned to my colleague and I said to her, you know, I really wish I had learned how to play the piano. And, and as I raised the glass to my lips, she said, no, you didn't. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you work for the FBI, you're an Air Force officer, and you have a master's degree. If you had wanted to learn how to play the piano, you would have given time to learn how to play the piano. <laughs> and it made me laugh, but it also stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. And thought, she's, she's right, because if I really wanted to play the piano, I definitely would have carved out time. Yeah. Like you, you said it very aptly. You know, you, you'll find time for what you, what you find important. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I've run into with people down in Honduras. You know, we have all these mission teams come in. And for a long time, I worked at an orphanage. You know, you'd have these people come in and that really want to be able to communicate with the kids. And the kids, they only speak like four words of English. And most of it's, I love you and candy. That's like the only four words they know. And so they have a really hard time communicating with these kids. And they would say, gosh, I really just want to learn Spanish. And I would look at them in the same way your colleague did. I would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You knew you were coming on this trip six months ago. and You didn't do a single thing to learn a Spanish word. And so like, no, you don't like, I'm sure it makes you feel better to think, but it's not true because if you had really wanted to, then you would have gotten that daggum Duolingo app. You would have gotten the Rosetta stone. You would have done something to learn some Spanish. So when you got here, you could actually communicate more than, you know, how are you and where is the bathroom? You know, you you know more than that. And so it's true. You, you make time for what you find important. And so what do you, what do you find important? And then like, what do you claim is important? And then like, what is actually important? I think it's another thing that people, they, they claim things are important, but like, if you look at their time, their money, their energy, that's just not true. And so I think, yeah, I think looking yeah. and just looking at yourself in the mirror, assessing who you are and where you're at and what you want to do. And then looking at reality of, am I actually doing those things? Am I actually putting the time and the effort and the energy and the money into those things? Or am I not? And if you're not, that's okay. You're not a bad person, but don't, don't continue to say, oh, I really want to when you don't do anything about it. And so I think yeah, it's- don't use- yeah, and don't use that. Definitely. And so I think it's really just about recognizing what reality is and then deciding, is that the reality you want to continue living out? And if not, then change it. Do something about it. But if you're okay with it, then be okay with it. I mean, that's, that's it, both ways are fine. It's just, but just don't, like you said, don't use it as a crutch. All right, well, let's, let's jump into number five. So number five is collaborate broadly. The example I use for this is, you know, not one TV show or movie in the history of TV shows or cinema has ever had a writer, okay? It's a team of people. 
You, know, you look at any good show, any good sitcom, any good drama, there are, there's generally a team of writers upon whom you bounce things off of. Now, some, now sometimes that's baked in two parts of the industry, right? So if you have a developer or you have a play tester, but sometimes even within those subsets, it's often good to reach out to other folks who have a similar inclination. So, I mean, as a developer, I have turned to other folks who I trust to say, does, does this make sense vis-a-vis -vis the rules? Does this, based on what I've told you and based on the, what I'm providing to you, would this give you the experience as we talked about earlier? Is this giving you the experience you'd want in the game? Um, so don't be afraid that even in whatever role you're filling to think you have to go it alone. Um, and that's why I'm a big fan. And maybe because I've worked uh, in various communities here in the DC area that strongly encourage the collaboration part. I think that's so important. And so much of, uh, of in what I've seen in the federal government, we call it stove piping. So these, each of these stovepipes are really, really good at what they do, but they're not good at necessarily sharing information broadly between and among themselves. Um, so I would, I would definitely do that. Now, I don't know, like someone like yourself, there are a host of podcasters out there, but do you, like for, for you, do you reach out to other podcasters? Like, do you, do you get inspiration and or assistance? Man, that's a good question. I did early on a lot. I used to I used to study so many different shows, whether it's Tim Ferriss or uh, oh, there's one one podcast that does an episode every single day. It's like a thirty minute show every single day, and this guy just has a ton oh of content. Uh, it's a business podcast. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but anyway, I, I, again, that was three years ago. <laughs> but I used to study all these people and watch their their YouTube content and listen to their shows and, and just absorb all their their media, just trying to figure out okay, how can I do this on a high level. Uh, and, and now it's a little bit different. Uh, I think I've I found the format that, that I like. Uh, now it's more on the technical side. Okay, you know, I just upgraded the microphone. I don't know if people have noticed, but I probably sound just a little bit different. Hopefully a little bit better. Hopefully a little more like I actually sound in real life. Hopefully a little clearer. Um, and so it's been more on a technical side, like what software did people use? What microphones do they use? What kind of pop filters? All that kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. it's been more on that side of things uh, as far as the podcasting go goes. But when you're talking about this with game design though, this is one thing I love about conventions. Like you can go to a convention and you can see a thousand people and you can have so many people right. sit down and potentially play your game or you go to the unpub room or you go to proto spiels, all that kind of thing. And you get so much collaboration. You get so many people who are designers who have this mind for design and development and creation. And, and you get to learn from them and see what they uh, experience with your game and that kind of thing. And like you're saying, it, teams are, are better, right? It was, it was the old thing. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, right? So how can you create more mm -hmm. strands on your team? Uh, and through, so through conventions, through meetups, through gaming groups, gaming nights, that kind of thing, I think all those things are super important. Playtest groups, uh, even if it's just online, right? An online uh, proofreading uh, rulebook swap or whatever it is, rulebook exchange. Any of those right. things are so vital in becoming better uh, at this craft. Yeah, and like I said, and, and part of it is just, again, getting yourself out there and plugged in. And never before has it been easier to do so. Uh, you know, we talk about the meetups. There are no less than 50 board game meetups in the D.C. area. You know, as I tell folks, it, it, you know, if you can't find a board game night, you're not trying because they're out there every single night, be they in bars or restaurants. Um, 
libraries, what have you. Um, yeah, you're 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 truly not trying hard enough. Yeah, and then that's with my, my Philadelphian side. <laughs> yeah, and then with with Facebook groups like the BGDL community Facebook group. I mean, because you might say, well, I don't have the time because you know, my kids or my job, whatever. I can't go to gaming night stuff like that. Well, there's a whole bunch of people online all the time, twenty four seven, two a.m., two p.m. Doesn't matter. There's a whole bunch of people online that you can uh, online that you can connect with and just ask questions and, and bounce ideas around and talk about different things. And so, yeah, you got to be be somewhere uh, in this day and age. There's no excuse not to. Well, cool. Let's uh, jump into number four. Uh, number four is feedback. And for this, I was specifically talking about having uh, a strong template for providing that feedback. Um, it's one of those things that one develops over time. And I remember early on, out on the forum, out on BGDF, and, and you know, people would ask me to read the rules or they would ask me to play test the game. And, and what started out as... Uh, you know, you're kind of prototypical, how long did it take? And did you have fun? Things like that morphed into something now that I regularly turn over to folks like Jamie Stegmeier and other folks, you know, which can be eight, nine, 10 pages in length because you've taken the time to actually go through and first draw that template. What does that look like? So what is your methodology? You know, what is my methodology for playtesting this game? What does that involve? And then really walk through everything from soup to nuts. Be it almost like a review. The difference here is you, you can be a bit more critical. And I don't mean that in the, in the pejorative sense, but in the sense that you're actually assisting them. From the components to the art, to the rules, to the actual gameplay, um, you can get a lot of information down because you're not hampered by, you know, we say in the, you know, the military, left, right limits. You can make that as long as you want, as long as you're providing good, you know, very constructive criticism back to the designer. But, you know, part of that is having that very strong template. And I've, I've, had, the, uh, I've had the opportunity to share that with, with a handful of folks. I, you know, and I'm always, I'm always happy uh, when I see other people kind of jumping in and, and doing this type of work because we're always in need of editors, you know, just like someone, you know, like yourself, who is a native speaker of English, um, what a find you must be in Ecuador or Honduras, rather, I'm sorry, Honduras, you can edit that. Sorry. You. <laughs> um, you know, and as I, as you know, looking down the road, you know, upon retirement, I'm looking very seriously at becoming you know, you know, a teacher of English in Indonesia. My girlfriend's Indonesian, and there's a country that's always in need of, you know, looking for fluent, you know, native speakers of English to teach. So I'm always happy. You know, one of the one of the constant, almost continuously, uh, or you know, constant criticism I hear time and time again, be it on Facebook, be it on uh, in Kickstarter and things like that are how poorly rules are written. And rules are a difficult thing because it's, at its heart, it's not creative writing. It's technical writing. And not everyone is particularly well-versed in technical writing. Um, so the more folks who can get into that, that, you know, that side of the industry, uh, I think would, would, would be a significant uh, improvement for 
rules across, you know, not, not just the U.S. Uh, I do work for Red Amp Games out of Poland. So I'm their English editor. So they have the Polish rules, then they're translated, and then I get the translated version. And then I go in, you know, looking for, um, you know, verb tense mistakes, other grammatical issues, punctuation. I'm a big Oxford comma guy. Um, but all that takes time, you know, and we, and we need people with those types of skills as well. So, again, having that strong template for providing the feedback, I think, is 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 important for the designer to kind of move forward. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I was, I was reading an article a while back, and it talk about, talked about uh, basically templatizing your life, right, and doing everything you can uh, to make it easy to do the things that you really want to do that maybe you have a tendency to procrastinate or avoid, right. And this is something I learned really back in the day playing sports. So playing uh, football, uh, we had, you know, the NCAA puts very, very, very strict limits on the amount of time you can practice. And it's one of those things that they, they really keep keep track of. And they've got people checking and watching it and, and counting down and making sure you're not going over the amount of time and different things. Because they don't want players to be abused and they don't want players, you know, they, they want to make sure players are healthy and things like that. Allegedly. I don't know. But, uh, and so our practices were very, very regimented. And like, you could look on the schedule and you would say, all right, we're going to do this for two minutes. We're going to do this for three minutes. We're going to do this for five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, five minutes, two minutes, three minutes. And you, I mean, it was, and we had a big uh, scoreboard out there that was on, on wheels. It was like a little trailer. They could pick it up and move it, move it around and it would count down like how long this period is going to last. And so you could see that scoreboard wow. and go, okay, we're going to do this drill for the next five minutes. And so, all right, guys, I need everything you got right now, five minutes, as hard as you can go, as fast as you can go. We need you know, to learn these new plays, learn these new uh, lineups, different alignments, different things. And so everything was very, but it was all templatized and you could see the schedule. And, the, and I was like, man, that's, that's really smart because it made everything super efficient. And it also, you can do anything for five minutes. You know, and so I think about like design time. If yeah. you kind of schedule out your day and kind of templatize your day and say, okay, from, you know, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., I'm going to work on design. And like, I'm, I know that's going to happen on Tuesdays and Thursdays, whatever it is, but templatize your weeks, your schedule. And that way, when you hit 5 p.m. on Tuesday, you're like, nope, it's time to design. This is what I'm doing. It's already set up. That's something that's really helped me with, with lifting weights recently. You know, I've, I've stayed in, in decent shape uh, out, out of college and whatnot. And, you know, I know how to lift weights and work out and things like that. But I, would, I usually just kind of go in there and just kind of do whatever I'm feeling. Like, oh, today I feel like bench press. Okay, today I feel like squat. You know, today I feel like doing some curls. So I just kind of do whatever I feel like. Well, I found myself not going very often because <laughs> I didn't have a plan. I didn't have anything I was following. But over the last, let's say, I guess uh, eight weeks, uh, I started doing this very regimented plan and everything's been printed off every day. I go in the gym, I go four times a week now, and it's got all these different things. It says today you're doing this and this and this and how many sets and this how many reps and this how much time you're going to take and this, all this stuff. And you're going to stretch like this. And you're going to do these ab exercises stuff. And it's amazing how much better shape I'm in right now because of this template, because of this workout, this plan that's saying, Hey, do this, 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 and this, and then go home. And so I don't just wander around the gym and be like, Oh, what do I feel like doing today? And you know, super inefficient, waste time, just talking to people. I'm going to go get some water now. You know, it's just, I'm just wasting time. And so I think making templates for creativity as well goes a long way in actually getting things done. Nope. You're absolutely right. Which leads me to number three. Yeah, let's go for it. Maintain a schedule. <laughs> yep. so, you, had, you had to think. So, so, you know, and part of that is, um, you know, I, I forget the statistic, but we'll, we'll call it 90%, but I think it's something on the order of like, you're 90% or more, more likely to complete a task if it has been scheduled. Oh yeah, well, um, get scheduled gets done for sure. Absolutely, and and it it's one of those things that you hold yourself accountable. Um, 
when I turned 40, and then again, when I turned 50, I ran a thousand miles in those years. Okay. And I wasn't running 26 miles in a day, but what I was running, I was making sure that I ran 20, 21, 22 miles a week in some way. And I took days off and I certainly, you know, and I certainly rested and slept and relaxed and, you know, doing all the right things for the body. But I knew that at the end of the day, I had that Excel spreadsheet I had to look at. You know what I mean? And I had to look at, you know, look at myself in the mirror. Did I do what I was supposed to do today to get to that thousand you know, that the thousand, uh, the thousand miles at the end of the year, right? So a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step or first jog, whatever. <laughs> but the idea being that, you know, the fact that I wrote it down kept me accountable. You got to do it. And the same thing there. Absolutely. You know, the, the schedule and what you just mentioned earlier go hand in hand. Um, you, you know, our lives now granted, you know, my little one is now 19 and in college. So in some ways, I don't have that regimented life that many people do, right? I come home and I can do whatever I want um, most of the evenings, unless I've scheduled, like I said, I host a board game night or what have you. So I really have to, you know, demarcate somehow, hey, I'm going to work. Like before I got on with you, I knew that, hey, okay, Gabe's running a little bit later. That's great. I'm going to take 20 minutes and I've got you know, 15 pages that I have to re-review for Pangea, Red Imp's new game, um, and, and just dedicate that time to it. Again, if you wait until you have blocks and blocks of time, you'll never get anything done because the ch- it, it rarely happens that you have blocks and blocks of time. There was a great quote years ago, which I'm sure you've heard that, you know, if you waited until you had enough money to have children, you would never have children. <laughs> and the same thing, and the same thing, I think the, the, the analog to that for time is, uh, you know, if you wait until you have enough time to, to design a game, you're never going to design a game. Yeah, for sure. And it's amazing how, okay, so many people, I think they psych themselves out. Uh, I think a lot of people, they sit around waiting to be motivated. They wait for inspiration. And if I'm just speaking for personal experience here, I don't remember the last time I was motivated to either work <laughs> on game design, work on the podcast, or work out. I don't remember the last time I had any motivation to do that. But what I've learned is that when I schedule those things and I say, on this day, I'm doing this, on that day, I'm doing that, and I'm going to do this from this time to this time, it's amazing how much gets done when I just start doing the work without being motivated or inspired or anything. But when I just sit down and I just start rolling dice or I start prototyping cards or I just get into the gym and pick up the first weight or do the first little stretch routine, whatever, it's amazing how much gets done, how much motivation, I guess, all of a sudden I magically find, inspiration I magically find. But it's because the schedule. It's because I'm, I'm saying, all right, from this time to this time, this is what I'm going to do. I don't need to be motivated. I don't need to be inspired. I just need the time to do it. And this is the time I'm going to do it. And so here we go. And so I feel like a lot of people, they just kind of sit around waiting to be motivated. Like that doesn't exist. Motivation is not a real thing. Like you can't pick it up and put it in your pocket. You can't bottle it and carry it around. Like it's, it's, it's nonsense. It's not real. It's, if it's anything, it's just chemicals in your brain that make you think it's something. And so, it, that, that's yeah. Right. And it's amazing how many professional writers don't get inspired so much as they go to work. They get up and they go to work. They sit down at the computer, old school, sit down at the typewriter, whatever, and they just go to work. And it's amazing what gets done. And so I think that's another thing. It's just scheduling those things out. And 
Because once you begin, it's so much easier to keep going. That's just normal, uh, normal law of the universe, right? That's physics. Objects in motion stay in motion. So what does it take to get yourself in motion? Because objects at rest stay at rest. So if you're at rest right now, what's it going to take to get yourself in motion? Because you're more likely to stay in motion once you get going. It's like, what does it, what does it look like just to begin, just to start? And then the motivation will magically uh, show up for you. Yeah, it, it, and you're right, because there's, there, it's very easy for inertia to set in, especially after a hard day's work. You, know, you put your kiddo down, dinner, what have you. And you've mentioned this uh, countless times on your show that you may only have from maybe 8 till 10. You may only have two hours, but you have two hours. Right. You know, it's what you choose to do with those two hours. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I guess the challenge is, don't wait until you're inspired. Don't wait till you're motivated. Just start. Just do something. And like you're saying, schedule it out. That way you know Thursday evening from 8 to 10, this is what I do. This And, and making it normal, right? And one thing about the, the whole podcast. So on Tuesday uh, afternoons when I get home from work, I usually get home around 3.30 or 4, depending on the day. And my wife knows, my, my kids know, everybody knows that this is the time to edit podcasts. This is what I do, right? This is my job right now. And so don't ask to go do this. No, no, honey, we're not going on a date on Tuesday afternoon, maybe Tuesday night, but not, we're not going to go get some pizza or anything Tuesday afternoon because I'm at work, right? This is my job, right? And, and we treat it like that, you know, uh, and, and we'll have to go Wednesday, we'll have to go Thursday, maybe Friday night, you know, somebody, it's not going to happen Tuesday afternoon because this is what I'm doing. You know, no, don't ask me to go play basketball with you guys. That's not what I, Tuesday afternoon, I have to work, right? I have to do this from this time to this time to do this podcast. So it comes up on Wednesday and 138 ish weeks in a row, the podcast has gone out on time. Why? Because on Tuesday yeah. afternoon, it's my job to get this podcast ready to go for the next day. And so I think approaching any kind of creative endeavor, anything you want to, anything you want to accomplish in that manner of saying, I'm going to die on this hill. And on this day, from this time to this time, this is what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter if I'm sick. It doesn't matter if I feel like it. it doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to get this done. I think a whole lot gets done. A whole lot gets accomplished when you take that mentality. Which is a nice segue because number two is <laughs> be professional. There you go. And, and, and the whole thing is now, and it's funny you mentioned the word work. So I say, so the, the way I want to frame this is um, if it becomes work in the most pejorative sense, stop and take a break. Hmm. But if it's, but if it's work that you relish at the end, even if you find it, oh, okay, I got to sit down, I got to do this. But if you, at the end of it, you say, you know what, that was a great podcast or, um, that was a really good two hours spent playtesting. Like if you can come out on the other end of that and find something positive, great. Even if, because I'm telling you, you, you like me, I mean, you're better shape than I am. If you dread going to the, I've never, okay. I will often dread getting up at four 30, putting on sneakers and going for the run. But I often find that it's the getting up out of bed and getting dressed which is truly the most difficult part. Right. The three mile run really ain't that bad. <laughs> and once it's over, you take a shower and like, oh, it feels great. But it's that, it's that, it's that, as you mentioned in the last one, just the whole idea that what do you need to do to move from zero? What do you do to move from something in inertia to something that's moving? Um, and, and, but, but going back the point being is, Whatever you're doing, be professional, be timely, be accurate. Um, if you say you're going to do something, do it. Uh, what is it? Uh, you know, under promise, over deliver. Yep. Uh, and something that, that, that doesn't always happen. But 
if you're going to if you're going to be respected as a professional, then you have to then you have to be a professional. You know, take the necessary, but you know, do the job that's asked. Yeah, absolutely. And that's especially true in, in this space, in the board gaming space. This is a very small industry, especially relative to movies and, and books and music. I mean, board games are tiny, 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 tiny. And so if you're not professional, word travels fast. You know, if you're not great to work with, people are going to know that. If you're if you're a designer that doesn't take criticism well, that's it's difficult to work with, you signed a game or two, but you know, it didn't have, wasn't a good experience to the publisher, they're going to tell everybody, right? And so yes. if you're not professional, yes. it's going to hurt you long term. Like there's no way around it. Uh, and so this is the case recently. So I was at Dice Tower Con and I was talking to a couple of designer friends and we were talking about a publisher who has recently just made a ton of mistakes. They've been attacking <laughs> their backers, their Kickstarter backers. They've made some really bad choices with shipping. They actually shipped out their game through media mail, right? They were they screwed up the shipping and it cost them a lot more money. I heard that about the whole media mail thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. All right. So media mail, for those of you not don't know that maybe you're in a different country, listen to this. Media mail in the United States is wonderful because you can ship books and movies uh, and CDs and it's a lot cheaper. You get a cheaper rate to ship things. It's awesome. You know, shipping my books, media mail has saved me a lot of money. Notice that I did not say board games in that. Board games are not media mail. And this company, because it screwed up their Kickstarter, right, and screwed up the, the shipping aspect of things, uh, they were shipping the books or the, uh, the games out through media mail because they didn't want to pay for the actual, like, cost. And so what happens is when people receive their games, Post office is like, yeah, this is not media mail. And so you now owe us X number of dollars. You, you owe us 10 bucks, you owe us 12 bucks, whatever it is. And so the the, the backer receiving the game also gets a, a ticket or gets a, a an invoice, I guess you might say, from the post office saying, hey, you owe us money and you you need to pay that. And so like, and the and the company started attacking the backers like it was their fault, like it, like the publisher had done nothing wrong. And it's crazy. And so I was talking to some designer friends at Dice Tarkon, and we were all like, yeah, like none of us are ever going to work with this company. Like, why in the world would we would we do that? Like, it doesn't matter if they're the only company in the world and they're the only one one that wants to sign a game. I'm not signing. A game. I don't I'm not working with them because that's the reputation they've built up through this situation and some others. And so word travels fast. So yeah, I totally agree. Be professional because this industry is very small and the more professional you are, the more people are going to want to work with you. And if you're not professional, they're not going to want to be around. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I, uh, it's a shame because we see a lot of that level of un, uh, folks being very unprofessional on Kickstarter. And that, again, not, not, not just the games, but maybe the people themselves need to be, there need to be certain barriers to entry. <laughs> yeah. All right. Number one. Uh, number one, not terribly surprising. On my top ten things I've learned by developing board games, have fun. Um, if you're not having fun in this industry, you're doing something wrong. Because the people, the games themselves, the the processes by which you know through which you work, uh, there's a lot of fun to be had. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not going to be hard at times and it's not going to be frustrating at times, but by and large, this will be the most fun industry that I think you could ever work in. I don't know if you know or have met Steph Hodge. No, I haven't. Steph, uh, she goes by Punkin. She had worked, she had worked uh, for a period of time with Renegade. She's now picked up full time with, uh, with Scott Olden and that whole group. She, she's a phenomenal photographer. You may have seen, um, you know, some of her stuff on Board Game Geek, but she is just very enthusiastic whenever you see her. And I think it's the, it's that level of enthusiasm to, to the best of your ability, you know, you, you want to exude. Um, 
in this industry, just because it, it truly is one of the more remarkable industries to work in and or around. And, and I realize, you know, I say that kind of in air quotes for our, <laughs> for the folks out there in, in radio land. Um, because, because there are some that are, are exceptionally well-known um, folks like me that are not particularly well-known except in very small circles. But the fact that, you know, together we make this industry. And, and I think that's the part which is like no other. Um, and, and again, I'm sure even on some of your most difficult days, you know, you kind of look back on it and, and, and I'm hoping I'm right. I'm saying, thinking, that, you know, you had fun. You've had fun at what you've done. Oh yeah, definitely. I love, I love this. I love this podcast. I love the community that's grown up around it. I love designing games. Um, I love the whole process. And so that's another thing, like you're saying, like you need to enjoy it in some, some shape, form or, you know, matter. Uh, it, it's going to be a grind sometimes. I mean, I think playtesting is a grind by its nature. I think development is a grind by its nature sometimes. And so that's going to be the case. Some days you're going to, I mean, I remember the first day of Dice Tower Con, uh, recently it just it just wasn't a good day i didn't get much sleep the night before uh some of the things i was trying to accomplish that day none of it got done uh i wanted to pitch some games and like none, nothing went well <laughs> and i went back to the hotel that night and i was like well we'll try again tomorrow and the next day i went out and i had a couple more pitches and they went extremely well and publishers took prototypes home and it's like okay cool back we're back you know and so i think that's another thing is just don't don't get too caught up thinking uh one way or the other right don't it's, it's that whole like we'll see you know, oh, this is great. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Oh, this is awful. Well, we'll see. You know, kind of being more reserved and more uh, measured in some things because terrible days are going to lead to, you know, great days and great days might lead to some terrible days. And so I think just being a little more grounded and not letting the emotions of things, you know, drive you one way or the other is a, maybe a little bit better way to live than than kind of the, the roller coaster that emotions can can take you on. Oh, yeah. No, indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Joe, this has been great, man. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts? Any, any kind of final advice for people out there listening? Um, I, I mean, I guess, you know, echoing some things I've heard in the past, but I, I would say start today. Uh, as soon, you know, as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, uh, you know, don't forget to, to, you know, like it on Facebook for, uh, for Gabe, but, but then, you know, take that one small step forward, whatever that may be. Uh, volunteer, uh, at a local con, you know, get out there and, you know, work with, uh, work with the company, get to know them. If you want to get into kind of this development space, if you want to get into, uh, again, I go back to play more games, go out to, I think it's, it's called double, uh, www.dexposure.com, double exposure. They have an Envoy program with something on the order of like 60, 70 companies they work with where you are certified to teach those games. Uh, and that's a great way to, to kind of get your name out there as well. Um, go out to the board game design forum and offer to assist. Maybe you have skills as an artist. Maybe you have skills, again, I mean, my focus is, is as a developer, but I certainly you know, don't want to discount all the other folks that make a game come alive. From a development standpoint, you know, I, I guess I look at it broadly. Uh, I guess I, actually, I probably should have defined that in the beginning, but for me, it's you know, one who play tests critically, one who can proofread and edit critically, um, you know, and then all of the things that from the development side, be it you doing play testing or you casting that out for others to blind play test, all of that kind of goes into the development, uh, into the development wheelhouse. 
but 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 don't be reticent to uh, reach out to publishers and offer them your time and your talent. So, yeah, definitely. Well, awesome, Joe. Again, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all the uh, development stuff you you got going on. All the games you still get to play test and proofread for, and all that, and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?